Welcome to A Hard Look, the administrative law review podcast from the Washington College of Law. We'll discuss how administrative law impacts your daily life, from regulatory actions by agencies and the litigation over them to the balance of power among branches of the government. This is A Hard Look. Hello, and welcome to another episode of A Hard Look, an administrative law podcast brought to you by the Administrative Law Review, Washington College of Law, and the American Bar Association. My name is Bennett Noose, the Senior Technology Editor of the Administrative Law Review, and supporting me in the booth, as always, is the irrepressible Anthony Aviza, ALR's Technology Editor. Before we begin, please note that the positions, views, and ideas advanced by speakers on this podcast are representative of themselves alone. Their positions cannot be fairly attributed to the Administrative Law Review, the Washington College of Law, the American Bar Association, nor any other organization to which the speakers may be affiliated. This goes especially for yours truly, as I will be playing quite a bit of devil's advocate in this episode. In the seminal case of Marbury v. Madison, which cemented the once informal concept of judicial review and the supremacy of the federal Supreme Court, Chief Justice Marshall wrote the following, quote, it is emphatically the province and duty of the judicial department to say what the law is. Those who apply the rule to particular cases must of necessity expound and interpret that rule, close quote. In the two centuries following this groundbreaking case, the Supreme Court has utilized its independence and appellate powers to review countless cases that have come before it. However, it is this very independence to exercise the court's own judgment that some critics levy as a constitutional complaint against Chevron deference, arguing that the requirement to defer to agencies is an unconstitutional abdication of judicial responsibilities and contributes to an imbalance of power among the allegedly co-equal branches of government favoring the executive over the judicial or legislative. This critique of Chevron as unconstitutional, for this reason among many, has come to the Supreme Court in this current term in the case of Loper Bright Enterprises versus Raimondo. This single case has the potential to change the very nature of administrative law as we know it, potentially requiring Congress to shift its approach to legislating, the executive in the promulgation of delegated powers, and the courts in how they interpret agency action. But above all, should Chevron be eliminated, such a disappearance will require our much beleaguered law professors to rewrite their textbooks and lesson plans, but it will few the administrative law reviews pages for years to come, so that's a plus. If you haven't listened to our episode on Major Questions Doctrine with Professor Cohen from a few months back, I'd encourage you to do so now. It should provide a good foundation for our discussion here, although we will do our best to quickly recap in this episode. Here to discuss the intricacies of this case is Mr. Daniel Sullivan. Mr. Sullivan is a partner at the New York-based law firm Holwell, Schuster, and Goldberg. After graduating with high honors from the University of Chicago Law School, Mr. Sullivan clerked for the Honorable Diarmond O'Scanlan of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit for a year, before clerking for the late Justice Antonin Scalia during October term 2009, meaning from summer 2009 to summer 2010. Since joining Holwell, Schuster, and Goldberg in 2014, Mr. Sullivan's work has focused mainly on complex commercial litigation, constitutional litigation, and appeals in state and federal courts around the country. Mr. Sullivan has been named to multiple law journals hot lists for rising attorneys and trailblazers and routinely engages in complex appellate litigation across the United States. Mr. Sullivan is joining us today because he is the counsel of record for the amicus brief in support of respondents filed by administrative and federal regulatory law professors, representing professors Andrew Popper, William Mariza, Marshall Berger, William Busby, Samuel Stryker, 
David Knoll, Peter Strauss, and Sydney Shapiro. Dan, thanks for coming on to the podcast. Well, thank you, Bennett. Uh, it's it's my pleasure to be on with you today. I should add just at the outset uh, that, as you, as you said, I submitted an amicus brief on behalf of some professors. I am here speaking for myself, um, though I represent uh, those 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 amici. I'm not speaking for them, and and when I say it shouldn't be attributed to them. All right. So moving kind of straight into the question central to Loper-Bright is Chevron deference, which is the general method by which courts review an agency's interpretation of a statute if it gets challenged in court. So as a brief recap for the audience who may be unaware of the specifics, can you briefly explain Chevron deference? Totally. Uh, so this may take some of some of your audience back to law school, um, but Chevron, of course, is named for, for uh, the case, as you noted, Chevron versus National Resources Defense Council from 1984. It's a doctrine in administrative law that governs how a court is supposed to review an agency's interpretation of a statute the agency is charged with administering. So, for example, the EPA is charged with administering the Clean Air Act, and in doing so, the agency might promulgate a rule to interpret um, the statute. In Chevron itself, the EPA uh, had, a, had issued a rule interpreting what the statute meant by referring to pollution limits on so-called stationary sources. Stationary source was the statutory term. And what the doctrine essentially says is that a court first has to decide if the statute is ambiguous or indeterminate or silent on, on the question at hand. Um, if it is not, Right. If Congress spoke clearly, then the court must apply the statutory meaning period without deference to what the agency's interpretation is, right? What, what, what Congress says goes. So that's step one of Chevron. If the statute is ambiguous, and we can talk more about exactly what that means, it's an important question, then the court must consider whether the agency's construction of the statute is a reasonable one. And if it is reasonable, the court defers to the, to the agency's interpretation. That's, that's uh, step two. So that's the classical statement of Chevron's two steps. Since Chevron itself, the court, the Supreme Court has added in a case called United States versus Meade, a prior step, which they call step zero. Um, and in that step, the court has to first decide if the agency interpretation is the kind of interpretation that Congress has allowed the agency to make with the force of law. Among other things, the agency has to be interpreting the statute it's charged with administering. And the agency must be speaking through a recognized uh, mode of interpretation, like notice and comment rulemaking and the like, rather than in some less formal way, like an agency statement in a brief before the court. So there are various other adjustments to the doctrine over the years that have been made, but what I've said is kind of a standard account. As a bit of a callback to earlier this season, according to Professor Cohen on that episode, he argued that Chevron deference was merely a formalization of how courts were approaching administrative review cases before its formalization in Chevron v. NRDC. What do you make of this argument, and do you think it provides some basis for protecting Chevron in the current day? Well, yeah, so it's a good question. As Professor Cohen um, emphasized in that earlier episode, which was excellent, by the way, just Stevens' opinion for the court in Chevron itself did not suggest that the court thought it was blazing a new trail, as opposed to recapitulating the way that courts had analyzed administrative interpretations of statutes before Chevron. Uh, it's sort of commonplace to say that the court didn't, that the decision get, did not get a lot of press and it wasn't a heralded thing at the time. So uh, I've not undertaken an exhaustive review 
of pre-Chevron case law to compare, you know, the pre-Chevron with the post-Chevron analysis. I'm just a humble, humble practitioner. Uh, you know, I know there's been some literature, I gather, you know, Professor Thomas Merrill has a book that some academics, in which he says that some academics have done empirical work on the rates at which courts accepted or rejected agency interpretations, you know, either pre or post Chevron, um, though it's not clear to me that that analysis has been, you know, exhaustive or comprehensive. It, some covered some periods, some covered other periods that may be taking different rubrics. Um, and you have to be careful about, you know, selection bias insofar as a court might not apply Chevron at all if it's going to reject the interpretation of the agency. But I think the general sense is that the agency does somewhat better under Chevron. Uh, but as I said, I don't know that the analysis is complete on that question. Uh, as far as whether it furnishes an argument to protect Chevron now, I think, you know, maybe, maybe not. Uh, obviously, if Chevron mirrored the historical practice and that practice was theoretically well-grounded, it would tend to suggest that Chevron is not a wrong term. On the other hand, you know, Chevron has developed its own life since 1984. Uh, and, you know, it, as, a, as a doctrine, it has to be evaluated on its own terms as a matter of first principles. You know, I, I also think that, you know, especially compared with, for example, the 1940s and 50s, when the courts seriously confronted legal questions arising out of the growth of the administrative state for purposes of judicial review of agency action. And I should say, I'm not, I'm not suggesting courts didn't address the issues before, just that it became more pressing after the New Deal. Uh, but as compared with that, that era in particular, you know, ju judicial interpretation of statutes now is rather more rigorous. Um, you know, under the influence of textualism and similar interpretive methodologies, courts are better able to uh, confidently parse statutory language that might have in an earlier era caused courts to sort of throw up their hands. Um, so if that's right, and, and all I have is a hunch, it's not an empirically grounded view, but if that's right, then you have to consider Chevron in light of the modern approach to statutory interpretation that the Supreme Court uses today. Right. And so that kind of question regarding whether Chevron should be at the center of agency interpretation is kind of where Loeberbright is coming from. So while not necessarily central to the discussion of Chevron and its propriety, where is the Loeberbright case coming from on a factual basis? Sure. So uh, the case is about everybody's favorite statute, the Magnuson-Stevens Fishery Conservation and Management Act of 1976. The fan uh, favorite. Yeah, it's, it's everyone knows <laughs> that one. It's... Uh, uh, it's it's at uh, 16 USC sections 1801 through 1884. If anybody's taking notes at home, so the statute permits the National Marine Fisheries Service, the NMFS, to develop um, management plans, uh, hatchery and fishery management plans, and that's done in consultation with regional advisory councils. These fishery management plans have certain requirements; they must include measures quote, necessary and appropriate for the conservation and management of the fishery. And the proposing council may include specific conservation and management measures that are enumerated in the statute, as well as any other measures determined to be necessary and appropriate. Um, specifically, plans uh, the statute provides may require, this is just a quote, may require that one or more observers be carried on board a vessel for the purpose of collecting data necessary for the conservation and management of the fishery. Uh, close quote. Now, the particulars of the Loper-Bright case involve the Atlantic herring fishery. Again, I know nothing gets the legal juices flowing like a, like a good herring fishery. But uh, in, you know, in seriousness, the, the case has huge implications for the good people who make a living from commercial fishing. So it's, 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 a, it's a big deal economically. 
In consultation with the regional council, the NMFS adopted a plan whereby 50% of herring trips in the Atlantic uh, fishery would require monitors. As we saw, the statute uh, says that plans may require the carrying of, of uh, monitors. Um, but in certain cases, the costs of those monitors will be pay, paid for by the owners of the vessel. And that's really the rub. Those costs are meaningful. The aggregate costs to the industry, this is according to the briefing, are estimated at $710 a day or approximately 20% of annual return. So like I said, it's a big deal for the people involved. Now, in the in the Magnuson-Stevens Act, uh, and I'm, forgive me, I'm gonna go again a little bit in a little bit of depth in the statute so that it helps us sort of frame the problem and the cases that came to the Supreme Court. But in the statute, Congress provided specifically for three circumstances in which fishing vessels could or must be required to pay the costs of federally mandated observers. So I'll just tick through them quickly. The first is that uh, uh, it applies to the North Pacific Council, which as you might expect, is, encompasses Alaska, Washington, and Oregon, not the Atlantic herring fishery. Um, and that council may establish a plan that requires observers, um, and it may establish a system of fees, quote, to pay for the cost of implementing the plan. Those fees are capped, and they are, uh, quote, not to exceed 2% of the unprocessed ex-vessel value of fish and shellfish harvested. So there's a 2% uh, uh, cap. That's the first circumstance. Second circumstance applies to what are called limited access privilege programs, which are programs um, where persons uh, are allowed to harvest a specific quantity of the total allowable catch for that fishery. And the MSA provides that regional councils, um, again, shall provide a system for you know, enforcement, monitoring, and the like. And it shall provide, quote, shall provide for a program of fees paid by limited access privilege holders that will cover the costs of the management, data collection, analysis, and enforcement activities. Uh, close quote. And again, those fees are capped. So, quote, shall not exceed 3% of the ex-vessel value of fish harvested under any such program, close quote. So that's the second one. So you've got the North Pacific Council out in the Northwest. You've got limited access privilege programs. And the third one has to do with foreign uh, fishing vessels. And it says that a United States observer will be stationed aboard such vessels when they're engaged in fishing within a particular area. And it, quote, shall impose a surcharge in an amount sufficient to cover the costs of providing that observer aboard the vessel. Um, and then there's some other kind of ancillary provisions there, but bottom line is that the NMF is supposed to establish a schedule of fees uh, that will be paid by the owners of the owners and operators of these foreign fishing vessels for the United States observers. Uh, you will note, as I was saying, none of these particular regimes applies to the Atlantic fishery. Uh, uh, that's at issue in Loper Bryant. Okay, so um, the NMFS rule regarding the compensation for observers gets challenged in the D.C. Circuit. The D.C. Circuit upholds the regulation over a dissent by Judge Walker. And the majority opinion uh, held that there was, as, it, as the court put it, quote, no wholly unambiguous answer, close quote, at step one of Chevron, right? So it says that, that the, the agency makes it past step one and then finds the regulation reasonable at step two. Uh, now, Judge Walker's dissent emphasized that the statute was silent, uh, and in particular, in particular, although the agency is allowed to require vessels to carry observers, didn't say anything about, except in the three situations that I mentioned, uh, about paying their their uh, costs. So, um, 
from Judge Walker's perspective, with no affirmative evidence that Congress had authorized the agency to fill that statutory silence in the manner that has done here, the agency uh, should should lose. So that tees the case up for the Supreme Court and and um, the petition for cert. So while the D.C. Circuit opinion specifically had to do with Chevron and how they were looking at NMFS, and again, that Chevron issue is being appealed to the Supreme Court, is there anything within these case facts that might give the court a way out from deciding the case? May it be that the facts are too unique or some other arcane reason that they can conjure? Sure. You know, sometimes the court looks looks for a way out of things. Yeah, it's interesting. In this in this case, uh, there were two questions presented in the petition for certiorari. The first was really specific to the Magnuson-Stevens Act. Um, and that was whether the statute, specifically, that statute grants the NMFS the power to do what it did. Second question presented was whether the court should either overrule Chevron, which of course is what we're here to talk about, or clarify that statutory silence concerning powers expressly but narrowly granted in one part of the statute um, does not constitute the kind of ambiguity that the agency can fill with respect to that same power in a different part of the statute. So the court did not grant the question, uh, excuse me, did not grant the petition for certiorari on question one, the Magnus and Stevens specific question, just on question two. So you might think that the court, you know, really wants to reach the Chevron question. And that certainly, you know, obviously is a possibility. In the briefing, though, the challengers do offer the narrower way out, previewed in the sort of subpart of question two. Um, and they ask the court, even if it does not overrule Chevron, to hold that the, that the statutory silence here does not allow the agency to do what the NMF, NMFS did. So, you know, it's not specific to this statute. It's specific, that would be specific to the kind of silence that exists here. They say that where Congress expressly conveyed what they describe as an extraordinary power in certain parts of the statute to force fishing vessels to, to pay the salaries of observers and cabin that power in certain respects, right? Remember, it's capped, et cetera. Um, that where that happens, the agency cannot construe the silence as to that same power in another part of the statute as effectively a grant of authority to wield that same power. So that's essentially Judge Walker's assenting view from the D.C. Circuit. Uh, so if it sounds familiar, that's why. It, and, you know, it raises sort of the interesting question of what kind of ambiguities in, in a statute authorize the agency to fill the gap with its own interpretation, which is a question on which much ink hasn't been spilled, uh, including in, in the amicus brief that, that I submitted. And so before looking to the attacks on Chevron doctrine proper, the petitioners in this case argue that Chevron is not entitled to stare decisis or in normal speak, respect as binding precedent. This is somewhat counterintuitive considering that there has been almost 40 years of case law on Chevron proper, but there is some academic writing on the idea that it's not entitled to stare decisis. Uh, quoting from a footnote in Justice Kavanaugh's partial concurrence in Allen v. Milligan, from 2023, unlike ordinary statutory precedents, the court's precedents applying common law statutes and pronouncing the court's own interpretive methods and principles do not fall within that category of stringent statutory stare decisis. And while this is merely a footnote from a concurring opinion and not binding law, there has been a series of scholarly works on the topic that seem to find the same way. So in your view, is stare decisis warranted for Chevron deference, considering that it is a formalized interpretive method? Yeah, that's a great question. And and uh, as you say, there's been some academic 
writing on it and and it's it's addressed in briefs as well uh so I, you know i i haven't plumbed the depths of all of the theoretical arguments as i said at the beginning i'm i'm a, I'm a humble private practitioner but uh i'll offer a few observations what they're worth so in a case called kaiser versus wilkie uh from a few terms ago um and in full disclosure i submitted an amicus brief on behalf of a, a largely overlapping group of law professors in that case um, in Kaiser, the Supreme Court considered whether to overrule a related administrative law doctrine, a deference doctrine, um, called Our Deference, after a case called Our versus Robbins. And in Justice Kagan's decision for the court refusing to overrule Our, and a, a predecessor case called Seminole Rock, um, uh, Justice Kagan noted that stare decisis cuts strongly against the overruling in that in that case, I should add that you know that the Justice Kagan's opinion for the court, although it didn't overrule our, did significantly cut it back. So that may or may not be a preview of things to come, but we'll see. Other interpretive method cases have also received similar stare decisis treatment. Uh, in Pearson versus Callahan, the Supreme Court overruled its ill-fated qualified immunity misadventure inaugurated by Saucier versus Katz, which held that a court reviewing a qualified immunity defense. In a 1983 case, uh, a constitutional civil rights case, had to adhere to a rigid two-step procedure. First, consider whether there was a constitutional violation, and then only after that, consider whether the right was clearly established. In Pearson, the court said, no, it's not mandatory. Uh, you can do it, but it's not required. And importantly, in doing so, the court considered much of the usual stare decisis analysis. So the bottom line, you know, uh, I think it's it's likely the court will apply some form of stare decisis to Chevron, whether it ultimately overrules it or not. But there are a few caveats to what I just said. So, you know, Pearson's a funny case to consider because while the court did apply some stare decisis, it, it also essentially said that the, the, the Saucier rule, which it was overruling, uh, did not have to be badly reasoned or unworkable. It was enough that that a procedural rule like that was found wanting after meaningful experience with it. So that's not much of a thumb on the scales that you usually associate with stare decisis, so you got to consider the details. You know, also, it is surely true that interpretive methods like, say, originalism or textualism, or the use or non-use of legislative history, are not holdings that command stare decisis effect. Uh, it is also true um, at a minimum, that judge-made interpretive rules like Chevron or the Saucier rule considered in Pearson do not receive as much stare decisis weight as interpretations of statutes or even constitutional decisions, which of course receive a little less weight because Congress can't revise or reject constitutional decisions. But you know, general cross-cutting interpretive methods like the weight assigned to legislative history or whether to you know, apply an originalist method or a purpose-driven method or whatever are different than specific judge-made rules applicable to a, a discrete class of cases, which is what Chevron is, what Saucier was. So the latter have received at least some stare decisis effect, the former, so far as, uh, as I'm aware, have not. Taking a different method to potentially protecting Chevron in some form, um, one can make the argument that agencies have developed an entire infrastructure reliant on Chevron to protect their interpretations from antagonistic judicial scrutiny, if only to keep the country running effectively. Is this kind of institutional reliance interest on Chevron a compelling enough reason for the court to keep the doctrine in place 
even if we concede for a moment that Chevron may be unconstitutional. Well, before I answer that, let me just clarify that, you know, Chevron could be wrong and could be overruled for reasons apart from it being unconstitutional. It's a judgment rule of analysis. It might just be wrong because it's not a correct statement of how courts should review agency interpretations of statutes. It might also itself violate a statute. So the petitioner in Loper argues that Chevron violates Section 706 of the Administrative Procedure Act. So just a note of clarification there. Anyway, to your question about reliance interests, you know, I'm not sure that an agency's interest in protecting its interpretations from antagonistic judicial scrutiny is is kind of a trump card. You know, I mean, scrutinizing whether an agency is acting in accordance with the law, after all, is what courts are supposed to do, whichever administration it is that adopted the rule. So the question is really how courts are supposed to do that. Uh, the point that the petitioner makes is that in reality, you know, there's not much institutional reliance here because first, right, an agency is not relying on Chevron's step one analysis, right? Step one is designed to weed out agency interpretations that contradict the statute. So if the agency loses, it's not, the possibility of its loss is not, is not something it's relying on. So it's only with respect to the possibility of the agency's interpretation getting through step two that there could be reliance. And, you know, I think the difference between when step one is satisfied and when not, which is what determines whether there could be institutional reliance under any theory, that's that's one of the really kind of vexed questions of administrative law. So, you know, it's not as though an agency can confidently predict or rely upon, you know, whether it's going to get through Chevron uh, or not. So I, I I don't see a lot of institutional reliance necessarily as sort of a, a formal or logical matter. Um, you know, I'm not a government lawyer, so I, I can't say what goes on behind the closed doors of agencies and whether they, you know, to the extent to which they're crafting rules or interpretations and reliance on Chevron sort of in, in practice. But um, as sort of a, a logical or a theoretical matter, I, I, I don't know that that gets you home. So kind of approaching it from maybe the opposite side of the argument is so for those in the audience that are not First Amendment scholars or practitioners, the United States courts have a test for determining whether or not there's been a violation of the Establishment Clause called the Lemon Test. However, Lemon is something of a vestigial organ because the court departs from Lemon constantly. Justice Scalia even mocked the test, remarking that Lemon is treated as binding law only when useful. Chevron, much in the same vein, has been largely ignored at the Supreme Court for the last decade or so and abandoned by some jurisdictions entirely. Considering that there are alternative methods of deciding administrative review cases, such as major questions, doctrine, and ascendancy, should Chevron carry as much weight as Lemon, that being none at all? Well, uh, you know, Justice Clay, of course, said a lot more than that about Lemon over the years. <laughs> uh, I will say the Lemon's demise has been announced yet again, um, this time perhaps for good, in the decision last year in Kennedy versus Bremen in school district. So it's an interesting parallel to draw. Uh, and not necessarily an optimistic one for the government side. But I, I, I think it's a little far-fetched. You know, Lemon addressed a kind of dispute that is, first of all, it's much less common, if only because agencies are promulgating interpretations all the time. I don't mean to trivialize establishment clause challenges or disputes, far from it, but the volume of litigation over agency interpretations is just uh, much greater. But they're different in another important way. So, you know, Lemon offered a supposedly unifying theory of establishment clause jurisprudence. And so when courts stopped using it, that pretty much signaled that the experiment had failed. It took 
time uh, for the court ultimately to get to what seems to be the definitive burying in Kennedy. But um, uh, you know, just by 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 virtue of not being used, it, you know, um, Lemon Lemon was sort of already uh, a failed experiment. Chevron is, although very important, it's not a sort of unifying theory of all of administrative law. It's really a way to address a particular kind of situation, right? What do you do when the statute is indeterminate on the question, but the agency charged with implementing the statute has developed its own interpretation of how the statute applies to that question. So when a court ignores Chevron because it, you know, a quote unquote, ignores Chevron because it interprets the statute on its own, all it's saying is that Congress actually did speak to the issue in a way that courts can uh, interpret or construe with their usual tools of judicial construction. That's not necessarily a rebuke of Chevron. It's just a recognition that the problem it addresses maybe doesn't come up as much as one might have been led to believe in law school or by the number of articles about it. So turning to Chevron itself and calling back to the quote from the introduction from Marbury, the interest in granting the judiciary the power of review was to prevent, in the words of Federalist 47, the accumulation of all powers, legislative, executive, and judiciary in the same hands, close quote. Judicial review has historically prevented both Congress and the presidency from overextension. However, critics of Chevron argue that this original stance is impossible with a grant of deference in the case of statutory ambiguity, as is provided in Chevron. Some have even gone so far as to consider this case as the antithesis of Marbury and its results. What do you make of this argument? And if it is plainly wrong, where does this logic fail? Well, you know, there is, uh, as you're probably aware, there's a famous law review article by Henry Monahan uh, called Marbury and the Administrative State, which uh, addresses this question in part. You know, I think Chevron can certainly be uh, used, and it has been. It is not supposed to allow for judicial abdication, uh, and I would imagine the court will make that clear, whatever it does in Loper Bright. Thinking back again to what Justice Kagan did in Kaiser, um, and you know, just being aware of the the fact, the reality is this: this Supreme Court has certainly at least some serious skeptics of Chevron. Um, and it's no secret, too, that the court, uh, members of the court have been skeptical of the excesses of the administrative state, and frankly, rightly so. Uh, you know, courts are supposed to ensure that the executive stays within the lines, and of course, the Congress does so uh, as well. But there are matters that courts are not equipped to resolve. Um, and here I mean less matters of agency expertise necessarily, but rather matters where Congress has delegated to the agency authority to act. Uh, so the brief that that I submitted on behalf of my clients basically argued that Chevron is a doctrine of delegation. If Congress has delegated to the agency the power to interpret the statute expressly, of course, right, that's an easy one. The court is bound to respect that, assuming the delegation was constitutional, right? Um, what Chevron says is that Congress can do the same thing by implication, by leaving a space in the statute that only the agency can fill with its effectively enforcement discretion. Uh, because a court, using all of its usual tools of statutory construction, simply cannot come up with a principled answer. So if a statute says that railroad shipping rates must be just and reasonable, right, how is a court supposed to interpret that? Uh, there will be some play in the joints, uh, uh, sort of inevitably, in the agency charged with implementing the statute um, you know, can fill that by setting some detailed but reasonable rules to govern whatever the question is. 
So under that view of the of, of the matter, you know, the court reviewing the agency action is still ensuring that the executive doesn't go beyond the bounds of the delegation Congress has made. So in that sense, it is still saying what the law is. Um, but what the law is, is a limited delegation to the agency to, to um, fill up the details. So, uh, but the agency can't fill up the space in the statute by, for example, making up a whole new statute inconsistent with the one that Congress wrote. It can't interpret Part A of the statute in a way that makes nonsense of Part B or contradicts Part B. So the court is still doing judicial work, and the agency cannot arrogate to itself legislative work, um, at least under under uh, one view of Chevron or, or you know, a properly cabined view of Chevron. Critics of Chevron further cite that statutory interpretation is a power reserved to the judiciary in that neither the legislature nor the executive really have the constitutional grant of statutory interpretation where Congress may implement or revise laws and the executive has the sole power to enact those laws, interpretation is reserved for the judiciary via Marbury. So the kind of fundamental question is why should the executive have the power of interpretation in the case of ambiguity if it is not constitutionally delegated? And wouldn't this be the evidence of Chevron being wrongly decided as it infringes on the power of the judiciary itself? Yeah, so I think my previous answer gets at this. Um you know, the outset, right, if it is, you know, the caveat in your question is if it is not constitutionally delegated, right? So in a sense, we, if there is a constitutional delegation, that's a precondition for Chevron. But much depends on what kinds of ambiguities agencies are allowed to resolve. Uh, in other words, what kinds of ambiguities one takes as an implicit delegation of authority to the agency to resolve. If it's the kind of ambiguity that courts ordinarily resolve with their usual tools of, of, of construction, right? If, if then then the court ought to do that at step one, and the Supreme Court has said as much. If one takes that seriously, then Chevron is really for areas where the statute is uh, sort of meaningfully indeterminate. Um, in other words, the court cannot answer how the statute applies in a particular situation as a matter of judicial construction. Now, you know. There are a lot of decisions on Chevron, and not everyone takes exactly that tack. Um, and you know, so it, it it may be if that's the way the Supreme Court goes, and knows whether it will or won't, that there's room to uh, to clarify that um, and rein in some of the maybe more extravagant conceptions of the doctrine. But if you look at it that way, uh, it, it kind of solves the problem that you're posing. Falling back to Marbury again is that some argue that the mandated job of any judge as provided in Marbury, the constitution and by kind of notions of common law is that it's their role to be a neutral adjudicator between parties. And to some extent, we recognize this by having judges recuse themselves when hearing a case that may provide a conflict of interest, for example. Isn't compelling a judge to have deference for one side in a legal dispute as Chevron necessitates once you reach step two, upend what would be a normal process of law, meaning more specifically, doesn't Chevron step two necessitate favoring the government over private institutions and people? Yeah, so it's an interesting question. I mean, you know, I don't I don't think there's any, that there's any uh, uh, connection and may not have been suggesting this between Chevron deference and, you know, conflicts of interest or recusal rules, right? The judge has you know, personal interests here, but um, uh Again, whether Chevron masks a pernicious bias in favor of the government, 
uh, sort of systematically is a, a important and a fair question to ask. Uh, but, you know, again, I think if step one is sufficiently rigorous, the doctrine prevents judicial arbitrariness rather than allowing executive aggrandizement. So, uh, you know, and now that, that requires that Chevron be paired with other doctrines that also reign in administrative access, right? You've got the non-delegation doctrine, which has largely been dormant, but, you know, we'll see in the future. Um, the major questions doctrine, which you mentioned, which fulfills that function and similar doctrines. So Chevron step two indicates that if the statute is silent or ambiguous with respect to a specific issue, the question for the court is whether the agency's answer is based on a permissible construction of the statute. And Justice Kagan and others have indicated that this permissible construction framework for an ambiguous statute is a kind of base rationality analysis. This is not to mention that ambiguity in the realm of Chevron has not been defined to any degree of substantial clarity. Does this framework of permitting considerable extrapolations based on statutory language create perverse incentives for Congress to both draft and pass laws that are substantially undetailed and unrefined, thus deferring their responsibilities to a branch of government that's not traditionally entitled to such power in kind of a schoolhouse rock sense? <laughs> yeah, so again, you know, legitimate and important question to ask. Um, you know, I do think that treating Chevron as a kind of trump card for resolving run-of-the-mill ambiguities would have this kind of risk. And, you know, there, there's a, like I said earlier, there's a lot of decisions, particularly in the courts of appeals on Chevron. I think in Professor Cohen's episode, he was, he was something like, um, it was, at, it was in the high hundreds, I think. I mean, it was, it was, uh, it was, it was a lot. Yeah, something around there. Yeah. But again, you know, it all depends upon what one does at step one and language you quoted is, you know, it's easy to take it out of context and and make it something like a, you know, an interpretive trump card on the basis of some of the things that the, that the court has said. Um, but if you look at the holdings of the court, it hasn't self sort of indulged in, the, in, in those extravagances of this, not, not much. So um, again, if one says step one requires courts to be able to apply all their usual tools of statutory interpretation to come up with an answer, you know, then you know, perhaps Congress can game the process, right, by using so so vague and difficult to apply uh, language that you would often have ambiguity even at step one, as I've described it. Um, but you know, nothing is free in this world, right? You know, Congress would create other problems for itself by doing that. Criminal and some civil statutes are subject to vagueness challenges, right? Under Clark versus Martinez, if a civil statute has a criminal application, you interpret it for constitutional uh, purposes according to the standard you would hold the criminal application to. This comes up a lot in the immigration context. Um, and the present Supreme Court is, is, as I said earlier, it's liable to take things like the non-delegation doctrine seriously. Uh, admittedly, the last go-around we had in Gundy, I think it was a a term or two ago, I forget exactly when, the court did reject a non-delegation challenge, but there were you know, strong dissents. And, um, you know, of course, there's always the risk that the court will interpret broad language aggressively, and Congress will not end up with what it was hoping for in the first place. Um, so, you know, I think if you're, maybe this is naive of me or, or, or uh, uh, insufficiently Cynical, but the better course if your Congress is to, is to uh, be as precise as the situation allows, um, 
I'm not necessarily uh, holding my breath for that, but but it's slightly a big ask, yeah. So going back to this kind of non-delegation question, improper use of delegatory grants is central to fights over Chevron. Uh, critics of the doctrine, like Justice Kavanaugh, wrote in the Harvard Law Review in 2016 that, quote, Chevron encourages the executive branch, whichever party controls it, to be extremely aggressive in seeking to squeeze its policy goals into ill-fitting statutory authorizations and restraints, close quote. Does Justice Kavanaugh's critique have merit, or is there some crucial aspect to Chevron deference that he ignores in this denouncement? No, I think it's a fair criticism, again, depending upon how tightly one applies step one. Um, and, you know, we have certainly seen aggressive uses of statutory language by administrations of both parties to pursue uh, their policy goals when when they don't either get a statute through Congress or uh, have any other way of, of doing it. And as observers have noted, and even Professor Carroll stated on our previous episode, agencies likely don't think about Chevron extensively when drafting rules and regulations. A skeptic would state that this indicates that agencies act consciously in unconstitutional fashion, knowing that they can attempt to defend their actions with the auspices of a favorable review doctrine in federal court. And arguably, we can seek instances of this within the past few years, which have backfired in which the Biden administration has been rejected at the Supreme Court for acting in ultra-virus fashion, such as in the COVID-19 eviction moratorium and student loan forgiveness. However, these cases may just have been alternatively decided if there was sharp adherence to Chevron. So simply put, has Chevron and administrative deference created a problem of agencies simply acting and then creating ex post facto constitutional justifications for how they act? Well, the recent experience you cite should be a cautionary tale to agencies. You know, there'll always be advantage taking, uh, you know, probably no matter what the rule is. Um, uh, I remember in law school in my tax class, you know, we had a number of, went through a number of examples where the IRS would create some rule and then everybody would come up with a way around it and then the IRS would tighten the rule to fix the, the loophole type behavior and then the, you know, that would create another loophole. People would, figure out a way around that and so on and so forth. So, um, you know, and courts have to have to police it, but there's there's some some amount of whack-a-mole is probably inevitable. Um, the question is how, you know, effective the, the hammer is. So kind of broadening the scope of it to not just the federal government and its relationship with private entities, but also turning to how states interact with the federal government. Um, Governor Brian Kemp of Georgia filed an amicus brief as well for Loper Bright, focusing primarily on the effect that Chevron has had on the several states' ability to govern themselves, which I want to focus on for a bit. So first and foremost, he argues that Chevron, in tandem with the Supremacy Clause, serves to enforce federal programs onto the states, which in most instances is incontestable under Chevron Step 2. And considering this dynamic, Kemp argues that even small intrusions into areas where states traditionally hold sovereignty is something of a death by paper cuts for the very concept of a state's right to self-governance as the federal government continually grows, protected by Chevron-like deference. What do you make of that critique, and is it missing something? Yeah, I think it's a very interesting brief, um, it, 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 but it appears to me that its criticisms, which are certainly understandable coming from a governor, are really directed at other aspects of the federal administrative state. So for example, one of the points made in the brief is that federal agencies 
crowd out state action or further crowd out state action even beyond the scope of what Congress has done, including in violation of a canon of construction, uh, well-established, requiring a clear statement before a federal statute will be held to preempt an area traditionally reserved to the states. So, you know, the idea is there's, there's a federal statute in place that lacks such a clear statement, the agent, but it's, 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 it's silent or there's a gap in some other way and the agency uses the silence to go even farther than, than the uh, statute itself uh, explicitly goes. So, you know, if you include substantive canons, assuming they're valid, which is a separate issue, uh, if you if you include substantive canons in the court's tools of construction, then the point falls away even on its own terms. But second, the root problem Governor Kemp's brief is complaining about is the growth of federal legislation into areas once thought reserved to the states. Um, that's an issue with the expansion of the Commerce Clause, or maybe an argument for aggressively applying the Tenth Amendment. But it, it's not it's not really about uh, deference to administrative, um, uh, at least not. In the first instance, talking about the scope of deference to administrative interpretations. So, so, secondly, Kemp argues that affording Chevron deference to agency interpretations undermines the ability of the states to enact their own policies, even if there isn't necessarily federal preemption. He cites specifically to the relationship that the Federal Center for Medicare and Medicaid have with state Medicare Medicaid programs in that very often federal regulations related to those programs caused drastic changes at the state level, which had considerably negative health outcomes for patients. However, these federal regulations which caused harm to these patients were protected by Chevron deference, even if those regulations were promulgated with the best of intentions when they may have been handled better by state executive agencies instead of federal. So why should federal regulations which intrude on these state executive agency interests be afforded Chevron deference. Right. So you know, in a sense, I'm not really sure I understand the critique. Uh, if the federal program is constitutional and federalism issues can't impact that question, of course. But if it is constitutional, then the fact that a state you know, might have done a better job doesn't really factor into how a court would analyze the federal regulation. But to the extent that I do understand the critique, I believe what the brief is saying is that for example, Medicare and Medicaid reimbursement rates end up controlling standards of care that are supposed to be the province of state licensing and other professional regulation, right? Um, and the reason for that is that doctors or hospitals will do what the federal programs will pay for. So again, I think it's a fair criticism, but directed to the wrong target. It's about the growth of federal legislation writ large, perhaps with a 10th Amendment overlay on top, Chevron's not the real cause of the problem, though it, it, it you know, might possibly make the incursion worse at the margins. So we've spent a great deal of time kind of um, addressing or treating the main critiques of Chevron that have been afforded in this case. So turning to a more optimistic or supportive bent, what is the best elevator pitch that you can make to preserve Chevron in anything kind of resembling its current form? Uh, well, look, I mean, I think properly circumscribed, it's it's um, kind of inevitable. If Congress passes a statute that inherently calls for discretion in the enforcement or application of the statute, uh, then at a certain point, a court will not be able to say whether this or that application is um, uh, correct or not. It can say whether it's reasonable. It can say whether it contradicts the statute. 
if you say whether it exceeds the scope of the delegation that the gap in the statute implies. Um, but, you know, asking courts to, to say whether, you know, rates are just and reasonable uh, or the like, you know, substitutes a limited degree of executive discretion for judicial arbitrariness. And there will always be statutes that have to do that because, you know, um, uh, of the, the nature of the problems that Congress has to address. And I don't even think this is necessarily limited to, you know, the modern world. There are always um, innumerable permutations of a problem that Congress is addressing. And, and it's much older than the 20th century that Congress has passed statutes that leave some play in the joints for agencies to fill in. Right. So 2024 is shaping up to be a really big year for administrative law generally. But turning specifically to th this question, um, well, I mean, while attempting to prophesize how the court acts is somewhat foolish and generally ends in embarrassment for people that try, um, I do think it's appropriate to try and tempt fate here. Um, do you think that the court will reaffirm Chevron, modify it, or kind of salt the earth and eradicate it entirely from American jurisprudence. <laughs> well, it's always exciting to be invited to embarrass myself, but um, <laughs> as you say, there's no quicker way to uh, uh, to make a fool of oneself than to try to predict what an appellate court will do. Um, so I, it is with, with uh, 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 some trepidation that I, I will offer something. Um, you know, if you put a gun to my head, I, I, I suppose I would expect the court to do, you know, something like what it did in, in Kaiser to limit Chevron but not do away with it. Um, that just so happens to be pretty much what the RMX brief argued. So I'm not sure that's a prediction as much as an expression of hope, but um, <laughs> uh, that's what I got. Right. So kind of looking to perhaps a potential result that the court might come to, is a middle ground where Chevron deference is only afforded in instances of highly technical and specific aspects of rulemaking, which would require agency attention rather than that of Congress, potentially a good outcome of Loper Bright and this increased uh, skepticism of Chevron. Yeah, so that's sort of the position we argued, but not quite. And, and I'll just pause for a second here to say that, uh, you know, in a lot of the academic literature, that I have read, and I, I have not read a tremendous amount of it, but there's, and you probably know this from law school as well, the discussion will often turn on comparative competence of agencies versus courts and uh, agencies being better able to address highly technical matters in which they are expert. Um, and that's one of the defenses of Chevron. But if you think of it in delegation terms, right, it certainly can be the case that a statute leaves open some highly technical matter of application, right? It certainly can be. Mm -hmm. What is a stationary source? Um, and that could be the space the agency is therefore charged with occupying. But statutes can speak to highly technical matters too. So and if a statute does so, then there's no room for the agency to do something different. It's just the case that in the sort of way of things, more often the, the matters that are, are left unsaid or left to the agency um, and to be more technical matters. But I mean, look in Loper Bright itself, um, you know, it's not a, it's not really a technical issues so much, um, but, you know, we'll see what the outcome of Loper Bright 
about is. Right. And so turning to some law professor's doomsday scenario coming out of this case, let's assume that Chevron is entirely done away with. What does the American administrative state even look like? Most people practicing law now only have experience in a post-Chevron universe or a legal system entirely controlled by Chevron, or at least where it pervades administrative decisions. So does this kind of new fangled method of doing agency interpretation potentially indicate a bright future or a dark period of unclear doctrines and endless litigation over every rule that gets put out? And a lot of law review articles. Let's not forget, it'll be it'll be a boon. Yes, we're going to be very busy over the next few years. Um, so, look, obviously, it all depends on what replaces Chevron in that scenario where it gets overruled. Um, you know, Chevron doctrine is not it's not always the clearest now. There's certainly plenty of litigation, and there will be no matter what. Uh, but of course, if the court were to do away with Chevron, there would be a period of uncertainty as parties adjust. Um, but you know, entropy cannot last long, uh, let alone forever. So the question is always what comes after. And it's hard for me to believe that the court would simply leave it open to the lower courts to figure out you know, uh, uh, what highly abst abstract or general terms in the statute mean. You know, what does it mean to be just and reasonable, uh, uh, have just and reasonable raise? So there would likely be some scheme of deference on questions like that. Um, uh, which, of course, raises the question of why overrule Chevron in the first place, as opposed to simply uh, clarify or narrow it as needed. Um, so we'll see whether or not if if it if the court were to overrule Chevron, whether we end up in a place that's not dissimilar to it um, at some point uh, at some point after that. And it's something we're definitely going to have to keep our eye on. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast, Dan. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Ben. And if you want further reading on Chevron, Loper-Bright, or anything else related to this topic, you can find some recommended reading in the description of this episode. Until next time, my name is Ben Anous, and this has been another episode of A Hard Look, brought to you by the Administrative Law Review. We'll see you next time.